I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all of the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That's a quote from Ivan in The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And and that's a piece of literature that inspired Alina Beery's entire intellectual and personal journey. She got her PhD in philosophy from Baylor University and is now the assistant professor of philosophy at Tory Honors College at Biola University. Dr. Beery's research includes uh, Thomistic moral philosophy, the character formation, and the nature of virtues and vices. We got into some pretty complex questions in our conversation and just barely scratched the surface of these heavy questions about suffering and personal responsibility. And that's because Alina is someone who's able to show concern for an issue at all different levels at once, philosophical, theological, and personal. She's a great, honest thinker and lovely to talk to. And I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion, the Director of Communication for Blueprint 1543. Resources like these and free classes on psychology for theology are available on our website, blueprint1543.org. Thanks. So, Dr. Alina Beery, will you tell a little bit about your story, the circumstances and the questions that got you into being a, what are you, a theologian or a philosopher or a philosophical theologian? How do you identify? Uh, yeah, I'm probably, I don't know, like philosophical theologian, philosopher, something in between. So I'm, here's the thing, I'm Russian and my husband tells me that like nothing about Russians is short. So, like, I will try to keep it short. Like, we just these, like, long, convoluted stories that involve many different things. That's great. I like it. Having too much is better to work with. And then if I need to, I can edit you down. How about that? <laughs> so, basically, my journey into, like, the moral philosophy started very unexpectedly i when i came to grad school i had plans on working on like divine language basically language about like how do we talk about god who is ineffable right like who is inexpressible but the first semester i was at grad school for some reason they were like a slew of stuff that was coming out on the problem of evil like lots of grad papers and the colloquium and that was just all around me and the more I listened to it the more dissatisfied I was with the kind of typical analytic philosophy response 
like I could follow all our arguments and they seem to be like perfectly fine, but there's something still so like deeply wrong with the picture. And I was rereading Dostoevsky again, The Brothers K. And of course that, that like horrible chapter that's right before the Grand Inquisitor where like, where Ivan lists all the atrocities that are done against the children and that, you know, that, that kind of stuff that like makes you weep when you read, I feel like all of these arguments against the problem of evil did not even touch the heart of what is actually problematic there. So that whole semester, I was really bothered by it, trying to figure out what to do with it. And one day I was walking my dog and thinking about, you know, the book and kind of had an, like one of the rare light bulb moments that I have. Like I only have a few of them in my life, but, but that was definitely it where I thought, oh my goodness. So Alusha has the conversation with Ivan and he walks away shaken in his face. Like he, the way Dostoevsky writes it, you can see that he's like, he's in the state of, I don't know what to do with this. And then he goes and he sees Father Zosima right before he like passes away, right? And he has that last conversation with Father Zosima. And in that, in those stories that Father Zosima tells everybody, you get a really like strong sense that Zosima is not, like Zosima sees everything that Ivan sees in the world. He sees the suffering, he sees the pain, but he's not like his reaction to it is totally opposite from that of Ivan. So he, he looks at the world and says, that's horrible. Little children suffer, animals suffer yet. Isn't God good. And something about the way like he is restores Aloysius faith, restores his like love of humanity. Right. And he goes off and like influences, like passes down that influence to, to little boys later in the novel. And I thought, okay, well, what's the difference? Like, how is Zosima able to, to look at the same data, basically, and, and walk away with a different picture? And I thought, wow, it's because he's a different person. Who you are actually matters when it comes to what you see in the world. Um, the kind of person that Ivan is and the kind of person that Zosima is, like, they will look at the same thing and walk away with two different like conclusions. Like I had to stop. <laughs> it was just so like, it, it sounds like no duh, right. Of course this matters. But to me, for some reason it was like such a big revelation. And I think like if you are immersed in the analytic philosophy world, like it is a revelation. And then I started thinking, well, then like you need to become a good person. Like then that's like the main project right, of your life, is how do you become the kind of person who is able to look at the world the way Zosima looks at the world? And I thought, well, then, like, virtues matter, and virtue ethics, then, is the most important thing than that I could study in philosophy. <laughs> so, like, right there, and then I decided that I'm going to abandon whatever project I had and I'm going to dedicate myself to like moral philosophy and to the study of virtues. To me, again, it was kind of just obvious that, well, if I want to do virtues, then I have to do Aquinas because Aquinas has 
like the best kind of account of human nature today, the most like extensive treatment of virtues. So that's how I ended up doing moral philosophy. That's how I ended up doing Aquinas. So, wow, I really love that. All while walking the dog. What's that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that brings up so many, so many thoughts for me. Well, first of all, it reminds me of like the Serenity Prayer. You know, like God grant me the ability to change the things I can and know the things that I can and accept the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. And you kind of did that. You were like, okay, I can control me. Like what can, what can I control about me? Because I can't change all the things that happen in the world or fix all the evils or whatever, but I can have control over my responses and my, so I think that's really interesting. So why don't you talk a little bit more about Thomas Aquinas and kind of just for someone who, I, I mean, I'm an expert too, because I watched like four YouTube videos this morning. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, for those who aren't experts, you know, maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about Thomas Aquinas and a couple of the ideas that he's known for and any sort of biographical information you think is important. Well, so Thomas Aquinas was a monk in the Dominican order, which was a relatively new order at the time. And it was the order of preachers, which was a revolutionary idea. Again, at the time it was, uh, I don't know if it was 13th century, but I don't remember. <laughs> That's good enough. Also, I, I think I saw that he died when he was 45, which when you think about people back then living these short periods of time and generating so much work, it makes you feel like quite lazy, right? <laughs> You know, that people like him, they like read literally every book there was. But anyway, so he was, he entered this relatively new order of preachers that was dedicated instead of like living a holy life in the community that is cloistered. Their calling was to be in the world and to be teachers and preachers to the people. And so Thomas was supposed to take over his uncle's position as a head of another monastery, like an, another order's monastery. And it was local, right? He would stay put and he would bring prestige and honor and wealth to the family. But instead he joins this itinerary order to go off and do who knows what. So the family was having none of it. And two of his older brothers actually kind of kidnapped him and locked him up in the tower. And he sat there for a year while the family was working on him to, to like go back to, you know, on, on his provision. And again, he was having none of that. And the brothers, for some reason, thought it's a good idea to, they thought, ah, we have a plan. We're going to send a prostitute to him up in the tower. And the prostitute is going to like seduce him, right? And then he cannot be a, a monk anymore. Then he will just have to go along with the family's plan. So they send the prostitute up and she gets in his room. And Aquinas, the legend goes that, that Aquinas was like praying by the uh, fireplace. And when he sees her, he grabs this poker and was sitting in the fire. So like red fiery poker. And he chases her out of his room with this fiery porker. Doesn't hurt her, but like she's gone. And right there, he like kneels and prays to God to grant him the supernatural gift of chastity, which he receives. And then the, the brothers were like, okay, we, 
would just give up. There's no, there's there's no, no change in his mind. Yeah. So finally, we let him out, and he goes off um, to, to to join his mentor, Albert the Great, and ends up having this fantastic illustrious career where he ends up like being the consulate to the Pope and changes the way we do philosophy and works in the University of Paris, which of course it was the, the first university at that point. So really becomes this this huge pillar of the church. It's really hard to summarize Aquinas because he just wrote about everything. Well, this is um, one of the things that I, I've gotten by like absorbing some Thomas Aquinas stuff is this idea of natural law and this emphasis on reason as this great gift to, to humankind that um, we're instilled with the, I don't know, the law in our hearts, if you will. If, if nothing gets in the way of your ability to reason, you can reason your ways to some of the great virtues or all of them, maybe. Maybe I just butchered that and you can clean it up for me. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think, I think to like get to the virtues and his understanding of all of that, we should go back a little bit and say, so he, up to Aquinas, the theology and like moral psychology conversation within the church was dominated by a Platonic approach and like Augustinian tradition, because Augustine was, of course, um, Neoplatonist. And right before Aquinas comes on the scene, um, the Muslim scholars actually rediscovered the works of Aristotle. You know, they translated it to Arabic first, and then that gets translated into Latin. And then they also wrote these commentaries on Aristotle's work. So because there was great interest in interacting with Muslim theologians, the works of Aristotle were discovered by the Christian church. And by the time Aquinas comes on the scene, there's this great controversy. Well, can Christians be Aristotelians? Because, right, like, if, if, if you know your Plato, Plato has this really neat um, understanding of a human soul that fits really well with the Christian tradition, right? Like, the soul is separate from the body. The soul is not a body, right? Like, you are not a body. You are your soul. And when you die, your body goes... And, and your soul like does what the soul actually been wanting to do the whole time, which is to be free from the body and to like be united with God. And of course, like you can you can you can tweak that picture really easily and end up with something very solid Christian orthodoxy. But for Aristotle, it's not quite as straightforward because what we love about Aristotle is also what makes it's problematic for Christians <laughs> to accept Aristotle. Aristotle says, no, 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 no. Your soul is not something that's just riding in the body, as in the spacesuit. There is no such thing as soul existing apart from body. The soul is that which makes body alive. So think like the soul of a plant is like the configure, like it's the way the plant is, is what makes that plant alive. So Plants have souls, animals have souls, humans have souls, because like there are all these different ways of being alive. And of course, like plant differs from animal in the sense that the animal can walk, move, and has like sensation. And we have all of these capacities, 
that the plant has and the animal has, but we also have, in addition to sensation, we have the capacity for reason. And all of those like capacities, they're not like little things that kind of nucleus that, that, that like exist together. It's more like the soul just has ability to do all of these things. The soul thinks, the soul senses, the soul is able mm-hmm. like digests, etc. So the person does it. Well, it turns out that if you think that way about a human person, you can do all kind of fascinating things with psychology, which like now contemporary psychology is kind of validating that approach. And we can get into it later, like the whole like neuroplasticity of the brain, right? Like psychosomatic stuff, all of that ties so neatly with our Aristotelian picture of the soul. But that's kind of, so, so his philosophical framework is Aristotelian. He's not thinking in terms of like separate soul and separate matter. He thinks of us as being, we are live creatures, we are formed by the human soul, right? We are creatures of a particular kind, right? And we're created in a particular way with these kind of souls, which means that whatever like way we are reflects the in some way um, the mind of our maker god and he aquinas has this kind of catchphrase that would be meme nowadays slogan <laughs> <laughs> is that grace does not destroy nature but perfects it mm. so he he he's driven by this deep conviction that grace and nature cannot be at odds with each other because both come from the same source, um, the same God that created us, the same God that redeems us, right? So if he has, if God has given us um, certain like rational capacities, then God is not going to come and destroy those capacities and like wipe them out and completely like redo us from, from ground up when he saves us. No, he's going to redeem that same like rational capacities, he's going to redeem them and and maybe like give them additional light of case so that we can like see things that we couldn't see before. But the mechanism by which we reason, by which we think, it's it's all going to be the same kind of mechanism. We we don't become basically different kinds of creatures. We remain humans when when we say it. Which, Which has implications for the way we can think of like virtuous pagans um right he uh, aquinas believes that like aristotle and plato and socrates right you you read their works and clearly they get so much stuff right they get a lot of stuff right about who we are how we to live like what's the best way of, of, of life and of course there are others like that so Aquinas believes that there, if a, if a person <laughs> is kind of uh, blacks out, right? Um, if you're born in the right kind of circumstances in the right kind of family that doesn't like squash you, right? That 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 teaches you the right kind of way of living from the beginning. That you live in the like good society, and if you have. Um, the natural kind of acumen of, of mind, like certain capacity for reason, then you can get pretty high up in thinking 
and like figuring out that okay god exists and the universe depends on him for his existence and like we probably create like we created by god so like you you, you can go up the ladder pretty high mm-hmm. and you can also go up um the ladder in thinking like what is a good human life what does it mean to live well in society with other people and for that, you, Aquinas says, you don't have to look further than the Kamakian ethics that Aristotle wrote, right? Just starting from, okay, humans are rational, rational animals and we are social animals. We're living like, we're inherently social and we're inherently rational, but we're also animals. Like, you can figure out then there are certain way in which it is good for a human to live and there's certain way in which it is bad for a human to live. Just like, right. right? Like if you think a plant, you know, there's certain <laughs> good ways for a plant to be and there's certain bad ways for a plant to be. So that's what he thinks about like the capacity of human reason. Of course, he's also a deeply committed Christian. So he thinks that, well, first of all, how many people do get to be lucky like that, right? And have like all the circumstances absolutely perfect. Very few. So so like the best case scenario may be like 0.00001% of humanity. That's like optimistic. We'll get that high. Mm-hmm. But even like that, the luckiest of the luckiest, they still don't have, like they still have effects of sin in the world and their reason the our reason is just not perfect because mm-hmm. long or short sin messes everything up mm-hmm. so so first of all you still have effects of sin second there are certain things that reason just cannot give you no philosopher will be able to come to a uh, conclusion that oh yeah god is triune and right. oh yeah second person of the trinity become becomes incarnate Right, right. That doesn't necessarily logically follow, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's not so, right. so certain things on which our salvation depends, the reason just can never give you in and of itself. So Aquinas says, so like reason has this capacity, but it always has to be aided by the light of grace. So mm-hmm. sacred doctrine and scripture is necessary for us to come to the true knowledge of God. So like, remember how Aristotle was telling you, like, this is how you live a happy life, right? Well, as Christians, we don't think that this life is all there is, right? We think that ultimately there's something more than the happy life in here and now. And Aquinas saying, because we were created by God, we also created for God. So like, he does this really cool thing where he effortlessly unites Aristotle and Augustine. This is wow. where Augustine comes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's amazing. So Augustine's famous is that um, you have created us, you have made us for yourself, O oh Lord, and we're restless until we find our rest in you. And, and, and Aquinas totally is on board with that. Like we created by God, for God, and our ultimate happiness is found only in this union with God. But if that's the case, then this natural virtues that Aristotle's talking about are not going to be enough to get us to this union with God. 
we need, this is again a place where the grace has to come in. It has to transform us from inside out and has to create. So like we can get by ourselves, we can get courage, we can get temperance, we can get prudence and justice. So, So we can get the four cardinal virtues and we can get like other virtues that stem from them. But to be united with God, we have to have faith, we have to have hope, we have to have charity. And those are, those are called theological virtues. And those are the virtues that we can never like flex our own moral muscles and get on our own. Because again, sin messes our will and our desire in such a way that we cannot orient ourselves to God rightly. Right. Um, God has to come in and create in us a desire Okay. for him and that's that's what god does when he gives us um faith when he gives us hope when he gives us charity and and once he gives us those virtues well charity becomes like in aristotle justice is the kind of the ruling virtue the one that well or prudence depending on how you look at it prudence maybe so if if you have a pig and like everything that you do kind of is, is ordered by prudence, by like wisdom of practical life, of, of practical living. Your prudence, your charity, your justice, your courage are now ordered not toward what gives me good life now, but what unites me with God. Okay. So is he, so is he claiming that those who aren't believers are practicing something else or they're doing it for different reasons just trying to understand that just that distinction yeah yeah well this is where it gets really interesting actually and this is where like like this area is exactly where the mystic moral psychology and the contemporary psychology gets like complicated and and Mm -hmm. and to answer this question i think you need to back up a little bit more and like revisit what the nature of virtues on our Sicilian picture. Cause like Aquinas adopts the, that definition and that way of thinking. So the virtues in Aristotle, they kind of are inherently um, normative, right? They have teleological orientation, which means like to, to know what is good for a thing like what, what's an excellent way for a thing to be? You need to know, well, what kind of thing is it, right? So a famous example, to know what a virtue of a knife is, you need to ask, well, what kind of knife are we talking about, right? Like if it's the sushi knife, then the virtue of that knife is that it's sharp. But if it's a butter knife, then sharpness is not a virtue. It's, it's, a, it's a vice, right? <laughs> That's why Aristotle starts the Nicomachean ethics by really asking, like, okay, well, what kind of creatures are we, right? Okay, if we are rational animals and if we're social animals, then now we can think of, okay, like, what what makes for a good social animal, what goods for, like, a good, like, rational animal's life? Well, it cannot be that, like, a human life is good in the same way that a cow's life is good, right? Because the cow does not have this like capacity to exercise reason. Wherever our happiness lies has to be something that is not like accessible to a cow. So it cannot lay like it cannot be just found in pleasure. And then he goes off and it's like, oh, it turns out that's this turns out that 
like characteristic activity of a human is an activity of the soul in accordance with the reason because right like in that way human is different from everything else so the human good Aristotle is saying turns out to be activity of the soul in accordance with virtue and if there are several virtues in accordance with the best and most complete because virtue kind of helps us aim at the good in the right way for the right reason. Okay, so Aquinas is offering all this framing for all this stuff before, long before modern psychology exists, but now it does exist. What this keeps bringing up for me is like this strong emphasis on reason. And when I think of guys like Aristotle and and Aquinas, it seems like they don't have a place for emotion that is positive. It seems like emotions can only be negative. Um, no. So, so tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get super excited because this is what I think um, Aristotle and Aquinas have a better, like they have such respect and such amazing place for emotions as opposed to platonic approach to human nature. So, so like if you're having this platonic uh, picture of a human, right, like where the soul is just groaning to get out of the body um, and reason is how like going to get emotions actually bring you down, right? Like Plato has that famous picture of a charioteer and the chariot, the charioteer being the reason and there are two horses. One is a good obedient horse and that's like the owner loving part of you and then there's the bad unruly horse that like the reason needs to keep whipping uh, and that's your like desires and your sense and like emotions basically pulling you astray so right like on that picture reason always needs to be on top of emotions because they are going to lead you astray well for aristotle it's totally different picture he says okay look we have this um rational capacity and there's reason but there's also like all these other faculties of the soul and some of them like desires, right? They seem to be like the picture that he uses is they, 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 they listen to the reason as children would listen to the father. Notice that like the picture is already way more <laughs> nice to emotions because and, and I think that's such a good picture because we all know there are circumstances in which the like if your emotions just gonna be like nope forget it no matter how loud the reason shouts I'm just gonna go do my thing. But then there are times when we can like talk ourselves down or like talk ourselves into a particular emotion, right? Or at least we try. Like everybody tried to like talk themselves out of love or into love, whatever. Some of us succeeded. But like on the Aristotelian picture of what virtue is, is it, it's not that reason sits on top of the emotions and tells them what to do and the emotions are like, oh no, I have to obey. No, that's actually a picture of not a virtuous person for Aristotle. That's a picture of a continent person. Person who knows what the right thing to do is, but wants to do something else. But because they like but they reason they do the right thing. And I think that's the picture of like morally upright person that we now have, 
right? Like a person that like overcomes struggles with themselves and overcomes their base desires and does the right thing. Well, on Aristotle, that's just, that's like not, that's like way down the line of what a good person is. A good person, a virtuous person actually is somebody who does the right thing because it's natural for them. They want to do the right thing. It's the thing that is, <laughs> it's pleasurable and not painful, right? So um, on that picture, you're not virtuous unless, like, your emotions and reason, they, like, in one accord, and emotions actually, like, pull you in the same direction that the reason is pulling you because they, they've been trained and ordered the right way. Yeah, and that reminds me of how you're, this whole path that you're on started with an engagement with literature, yeah. like creating an emotion in you yeah. and that pulls you towards something positive. And that's, that's like the, the liberal arts education model has always been that we want to, well, and parenting model, if you think about it, right? Like as a parent, you want to train your child to love the right things and to shun the wrong like the right things, right? Like the sacred charge of the parent is to train your child's heart to attach themselves to the right things and to be horrified and pull back from things that are genuinely bad. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is a deeply Aristotelian and domestic picture of what mm. they're doing. Okay, so we were trying to get moved ahead but, but which is fine. <laughs> so, but what were you? Where were you going with Robert Roberts? And oh yeah, so Robert Roberts, so mm -hmm. he's a dissertation director. Mm -hmm. So he has been like just as a grad student, I would periodically take seminars in which he would have us read contemporary psychology. And I came across one of the seminars. I came across Christian Miller's work, and he's a contemporary philosopher who works on ethics and virtues but he's also very very committed in this like close collaboration with contemporary psychology and slowly just by reading these people i became interested in cooperation with contemporary moral psychology i just now realized that philosophers can be helpful when you're looking <laughs> when you're looking to define certain things, define terms, right? They'll ask the annoying question that will help you sharpen yeah. what you're talking about. So I could see with a virtue psychology or positive psychology, virtue psychology, whatever, that having philosophers around to sort of help you figure out what you're studying, you know, how do I know what is forgiveness? How is it different from reconciliation or, you know, things like things like that, like defining terms and stuff. So that's what I know about some of the interdisciplinary story. But if you want to, you want to add to that or say that's not the point you're trying to make, that's fine. <laughs> no, actually, I think it is the point because the philosopher kind of, you know, we, we have this at our worst, we, we feel like we are the queen of the science and we sit in our high up intellectual perch, right? And we, and we like, we have the goods. So especially like our soul going all the way back, right? Well, we kind of felt, I think, superior to those poor psychologists who are like fumbling around trying to figure out what's going on because <laughs> we know. Um, <laughs> psychology used to study character. And then there were some really kind of influential studies that, that problematized the notion of character in psychology, right? And that's what 
took psychology away from character, and now we're going back to character. But those studies that showed that, wait a second, people might not even act out of character. Like, it's all push and pull of the of the situations, right, that, that they find themselves in. There were, like, different types of studies, and that's all very well documented in psychology. But philosophers kind of existed blissfully unaware of all of that, um, because, right, like, who cares what, what they're doing? They're going to find <laughs> the truth eventually. Um, <laughs> until two philosophers who were kind of coming out of the Aristotelian background started reading these studies and started thinking, wait a second, if there is no such thing as character, if, if it's all just situations pushing and pulling on us, then... What we're saying about moral character and about virtue development and all of that, like that goes out of the window too. So they published kind of a series of very provocative, intentionally provocative articles and books. One of them is this lack of character book. This is one of the guys that... Um, <laughs> cover. <laughs> cover it pretty, uh, <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> intentionally provocative. Yep, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so John Doris was one of these two philosophers. And so that, like, eventually enough Aristotelians kind of woke up to this problem and said, wait a second, we do need to rethink of how does this empirical studies that psychologists are doing fits with the picture that we've been articulating all this time. And so the question of is there such thing as character started, I think, really this now growing trend of philosophers collaborating with psychologists. And there were like different answers given. Some of the like, some of the philosophers would just swat the problem away. Some of them would like explain it away. But there was enough philosophers who were going to um, just kind of look the problem square in the eye and say, okay, we have this data, we need to do something about it. That, that like started talking to psychologists and started um, generating other projects. And Christian Miller is kind of one of those philosophers that was at the helm of that whole um, project. And so reading his books, I went to his summer seminar where out of that seminar, I think I walked away convinced that like whatever I do afterwards, I have to like I have to exist in this interdisciplinary space. Because psychologists right now are asking exactly the kind of questions that I want to ask from the philosophical point of view, and they have these empirical tools, right? Like a different way of looking at the same thing. Yeah. Um, I can benefit from and then I also see psychologists like what you said sometimes trying to to just study something without necessarily like creating the conceptual framework for it yeah and they are being hampered by it and I thinking okay as a philosopher I can bring that to the table so we can like mutually yeah that's helpful to you know look at it from both sides philosophers are building these arguments in tell me if I've got this right, within those arguments, there are intuitions and claims about the way people are, which can sometimes be called into question by some of the empirical research. Mm 
So causing you to have to go back and sort of go, okay, well, why did we think this? And if it's not the case, is there another way or, or something like that? And then, um, and then just on the other side of things, it might, it might be that the psychologists are studying something different than what you thought they were because of the definitions and stuff, you know, what's being studied is, is, uh, abstract and maybe need some, some hedging in or something. Can you talk about any examples of ways you've engaged psychology that, um, had an impact on you or made you really think? (laughs) Yeah. So I think where I originally was hooked was just reading a bunch of stuff. Bias. Implicit bias. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it was just, just kind of personal frustration that we all experienced with like engaging in conversations with people who like hold such extreme mm-hmm. opposite views from you, right? On the political mm-hmm. spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it's a big one right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, So, like, my husband's family is very different from me and my husband politically and, like, everything else that goes with it. So that, that, like, frustration that we have experienced talking and talking and talking and coming, like, it feels like you come up against the wall, right? And and Mm -hmm. it feels like they walk away from the conversation more entrenched in their views, which, like, we've been working so hard to show that these views are not correct, like, not supported by facts. And then I read that there's such thing as like something close to like disconfirmation bias where, right, like when, when, when your core beliefs are threatened by facts, instead of, instead of looking at you, looking at the facts, you like, you reject the facts and you double down on the faulty belief that mm-hmm. you have. So mm-hmm. whenever I would read this, about stuff like that, I would just feel yeah. like I'm gonna right here out. Like, how do you deal with something like that? How do you start yeah. to? How do you like even begin to to deal with this problem? And then, of course, all the all the racial injustice that was happening. Every like every kind of bias that that goes into like the racial profiling, right, and unjust yeah. treatment. Of um, of minorities by people in authority and like people not in authority, like there's just so much there that like that's kind of the area that I was originally really interested in, and I think whenever I was reading stuff that was just psychologically descriptive, I would get really pessimistic and really kind of not quite despairing but like well if this is if this like if this set of biases kind of just come standard like this is a standard toolkit right of, of what right. it means then like okay well how do you ever combat this and yeah. and the solution that's proposed by people who engage in that literature is that well we need to like change the situation right like we need to do this nudges that that would lead to the change of behavior i mean that might give you a good result but that's not a solution because you're not changing the heart of the person you're just changing their behavior and it's like paternalistic and right like you're not treating 
like the people who get to design the nudges, mm-hmm. there's, there's very different relationship between that person and the rest of us who get nudged. Right. So, so it just everything in me felt so if icky about the about the, the nudges type solution. So I thought, okay, well, do we have anything else to offer? And and this is where like my Thomistic convictions kind of give me a little bit of hope because right as a Thomist, I'm committed to thinking that um, our appetites, which is like our emotions and our desires, our appetites, they are responsive to reason. There is like articulation of human psyche in which those um, things are connected in such a way that I could retrain my appetites. I could retrain my emotions and actually retrain them, right? Not just be nudged from the outside. So that's where I would ultimately want to like do the work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You see, like we come preloaded with these biases that will just sort of like run the show if we're not aware of them or we don't train them or grow. Where does that fit with sort of the the preloaded God-given sense of reason? Do you see that as a sign of our corruption or as as as, as sin or the biases part? Of, would you categorize them that way or or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I think I think this is where we would have to start pulling these things apart and look at them individually. Right. Like I actually had a conversation with Justin mm. about this, Justin Barrett. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be like hardwired on psychology perspective. We, we we seem to have like certain hardwired features of our cognition, like grouping things, right? Mm-hmm. Like together and grouping people together like insiders outsiders my people my people great features of our cognition that were designed to help us stay alive or keep us safe safe from threats right exactly yeah but even like categorizing things and um right like colors right and just making sense of the world and that is very i think also picture that is very complementary to Thomistic picture. So some some of these pre-given hardware <laughs> things are there. And that's just part of what it means to have human reason, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's always but then there are such things as um, what do you do with those things? Right? So you have this this given cogn- tendency to group things into like inside outside but then if you live in a society that says well inside outside is good and bad and this is white this is black right Mm -hmm. Then, then suddenly like that neutral capacity neutral um cognitive framework gets gets like hijacked and corrupted in terms of racism, right? So it seems like depending on what you're looking at, you would have to, yeah, you would have to address them individually. And of course, on the Christian picture, um, we have the notion of sin, and Aquinas um, has this picture that at the 
before the fall, reason and will and the appetites, the emotions, they all existed, like functioned in complete harmony with each other so that like our emotions wouldn't pull us to something that is actually not good for us, right? And reason would say, this is a good thing. And emotions would be like, oh, yay, lovely, delightful. And like, we all work together. Well, the fall, and, and he called it original justice. And since like all things work together well, like in the right order. At the fall, we lost the original justice. So if you think of our psyche as like, it's a bad analogy, but it kind of makes sense. If you think of it like as a machine where like all cogs work together really well. And it's a bad analogy because we're not a machine with not cogs. But so like the fall is like shoved a big old wrench into that machine and now cogs pulled apart and now like things are spinning here and spinning here and they're not connected. So the appetites don't listen to reason. Um, reason is darkened. So like we don't have like we just don't think as well as we used to think, right? Our will is disordered. It pulls us into like all these different directions. So that is just from the moment like we come into the world already with this, with everything in us already affected by the sin. And it takes a lifelong obedience and faith to, to like get us even close to what we were supposed to be. Right. And that causes and so of course. I know that I have a reaction in me and maybe it's some of my like liberal tendencies or whatever, but like when people talk about when people are like into virtue or like studying virtue, I go to this place of like where, and you, and this will probably be a callback to earlier when you were talking about the person who had the most optimal life circumstances is most likely to demonstrate virtues, which this is a very imaginary situation, right? Like what, (laughs) it it just is easier for certain people who are like loved well their whole life and given lots of resources, they have more agency and I don't know, maybe more free will if you want to put it that way to choose things that are good for their own flourishing, for the flourishing of those around them, you know? But like you said, we're all like, not like we're all on this scale to one degree or another. And I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe there's just like a baggage on the term virtue for me (laughs) where it's very like guilt driven or something, (laughs) but understanding that certain virtues are going to be easier for some people to enact than others, or certain types of habits are going to be easier for different types of persons from different socioeconomic locations and certain different bodies. I mean, I guess like it's never just one, like there's that whole like nature nurture debate. And it seems like the moral of that story every time is that it's always both, right? It's always a combination of both your physical makeup and your circumstances and just understanding to have empathy with one another and that we all have different challenges and different types of having different strengths and different weaknesses and stuff. And going back to how this whole conversation started with your desire to kind of just be the best person you can be. Mm-hmm. How does the Thomas account maybe like mixed with some of what we know from psychological science kind of speak to that or, or mm-hmm. do you have any reflections on sort of like that issue? 
Yeah. I don't know. Answer however you want. Cause I know that was like a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So lots of things in that question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very sympathetic with your like stance because my original preoccupation with the problem of evil is very much like fits into that category. Yeah. Right. Like, what about that one person who who ends up having, like, absolutely terrible life for, like, no seeming yeah. fault of their own? Um, and they completely screw it up, and they screw up other people, like, around them. So I think, I think there's not really an easy answer to this question. And eventually, eventually, I would be pushed into a corner that I very much don't like, but I don't know how to get out of it and, and, and be, and be like honest. Yeah. So eventually it will have to, it will have to come down to God's providence Mm -hmm. and like, really don't like that answer. And it's um, like on, 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 for many reasons, including like deeply personal reasons, it's, it's an answer that I don't find palatable, but if I'm like intellectual, honest, I have to say like, ultimately God is in control, right? Of who responds to him and who doesn't respond to him. But given that with the whole like, well, some people seem to lock out, some people don't seem to lock out, right? Like what if you brought up in those terrible situations and, and what are you to do? Like, where's virtue path for you there? So I think, Christian version of virtue ethics has resources in that uh, regards where just pure like Aristotelian virtue ethics and, and, and there are plenty actually contemporary like near Aristotelians that don't don't have anything to do with Christianity. So on the on just purely Aristotelian virtue ethics version, those resources are lacking because there the picture is just like, well, you are a product of your environment and, and like your upbringing like forms you in the way that either pushes, like puts you on the path to virtue or puts you on the path to vice. And once you're formed, you like, you kind of, you formed, right? <laughs> we always talk about virtues and vices being like, have you ever done cross uh, country skiing? I haven't done it, no, but it happened on my street last month. <laughs> we had a snowstorm and people were literally doing that on the street. And I'm from California, so I'd never seen such a thing. <laughs> well, I grew up doing cross-country skiing like every winter. It was our PE. Once it snows, <laughs> that's what we're doing. Outside. Wow. But anyway, like, you know that once like there's new snow, right? Like, it, the first person who breaks the ground has the hardest job and like the, the next subsequent and eventually like it gets to the point that 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 um that path becomes so easy to do like that mm-hmm. you, you don't work at all you just move your feet like this so this is kind of a picture of what virtues and vices do like every action that you take either like you know solidifies a path mm-hmm. it's either path toward the good lot like toward virtues like good character mm-hmm past or with the bad character and of course like every subsequent action it becomes easy and easier to go down a particular path right. well on, on the Aristotelian picture like once the path is set that's it you skiing down the hill from that point like you can't get out of that path but with Christianity we have grace 
and we have such amazing examples as Augustine, mm-hmm. who is like completely sex addict, right? And mm-hmm. then gets converted and like God changes them. Mm-hmm. And like now with the psychological resources available to us, we can be like, oh yeah, there's like a whole kind of thing that can happen with your brain where it gets rewired, right? Like the the there is a way for like new neural pathways to be created and like looks like God can do that to us. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like and, and there are stories upon stories and stories of like addictions cured overnight, right? Um, yeah. New habits formed in, in people where they were not there before, like capacity to love and forgive, you know, appearing overnight, whereas yeah. before there was just hatred or, and, and bitterness. So, um, so that's there for us that I think is available. And then there's, you know, I, I just, I, I personally know, um, and, and Augustine is like far off inspiration, but um, in my life, there's this wonderful woman who I, who is like my intellectual and spiritual crush. She's, she's the most brilliant person I know, and she's the most humble person I know. She teaches at the University of Chicago, and she writes on moral formation, and I didn't know until she published a story of her conversion in like the edited volume book that she had um, really like the most horrific childhood imaginable that makes Ivan Ramazov stories look like, mm. you know, it's children's play. It's horribly abused um, since like infancy. Mm. Um, so it makes me cry when I think about it because it's just so bad. But somehow God preserved her in the middle of all that pain and brutality and just confusion. Mm-hmm. And there was so, like, the, she is a walk in miracle for me. And like to have somebody that I actually know and see God's action in their life and, and, and how much how how good she is and how loving she is and how much her and her husband like spread this love and and compassion and and just goodness around them like that the kind of stuff that gives me hope yeah gives you hope for sure yeah and and to think that and it's actually like i can i have a story that i can tell about like what's going on psychologically there from the perspective yeah like both Thomistic perspective and contemporary psychology perspective. Yeah. I know if that answers your question. (laughs) Well, yeah. And hopefully it, well, it's, it does. I mean, it doesn't answer the question of like it, that does that happens for her and not to some other people, you know, and that's, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, But yeah, it's encouraging and it offers hope and you know, being the social animals that we are, uh, if when we when we do evil, it causes ripple effects, right? And if we're if we're damaged, we damage others, and then it just keeps going, you know. But like someone like like who you're referencing is is gonna break a chain that could have continued a lot longer, and then 
good things can ripple out instead of bad things and stuff. And that's a, that's a beautiful picture. And I think that's um, like, I definitely don't want to say it lightly that, Oh, look, get to the situation, right? Because we have so many horrible situations that don't get redeemed. And and this is the kind of stuff, like it's still the problem of evil to me is still the most raw problem there is. And like, to me, like the only real problem there is in Christianity. And this is like, every time I'm thinking about it, I have to like walk myself mentally back to the state where I can like yeah. be okay. Um, mm-hmm. But there's just, I, I can't get out of this theological corner. Ultimately God is the one that's, that's yeah like the box stops with him. And something that I, so my sister, died recently a year mm. ago and mm, so sorry and i had to struggle with lots of questions yeah because of that and um there's a dominican priest that i that i also very much love um mm. father thomas just he's in charge of he was in charge of the mystic institute here in the states and now he's starting something like that in um mm-hmm. But when I, like, had this email conversation with him about this, he said something that I kind of hold on to, and that is, God has Father's heart. And in the end, we can, like, we have no other option but to trust his Father's heart. I think that's that's the only real answer that I can give to myself. Yeah. To the problem. And that goes all the way back to my, like, moment with uh, Father Zosima because I think that is like the only answer that that could be given right yeah because it's not like the character in the book was seeing God's beauty in the suffering right rather he was experiencing God's maybe God's presence through you know through the suffering right and that's what's cool is because what I heard when you were talking about that is that it's not like you wanted to be the kind of person that would like like superwoman or something. You want to be the kind of person that could stand in the midst of suffering or see suffering and still feel that like that father's heart, that closeness or or something, which mm-hmm. is that's how you become a resilient human being. Thank you for sharing so much of that and it, letting it get personal and stuff, too. That's, yeah, thanks. But I really appreciate your time. I thought we'd end this episode with one more quote from the Brothers Karamazov. No one can judge a criminal until he recognizes that he is just such a criminal as the man standing before him, and that he is perhaps more than all men to blame for that crime. When he understands that, he will be able to judge. Though that sounds absurd, it is true. End quote. Is that true? something to think about. Thanks for listening.